Welcome back to another episode of Play Next, brought to you in partnership with BMW. I'm Edith Bowman and boy do I have an absolute beaut of an episode for you today, complete with not two, but three quite remarkable guests. I'll be catching up with Got Street Park, a group that are breaking all kinds of musical boundaries up in Leeds. And I'm very much looking forward to sharing my adventure into their musical brains with you. After that, I'll be joined by someone who I have the utmost respect and admiration. If I were to list all of their achievements, well, we'd be here for weeks, so I'll just jump straight to it. It's Kay Tempest, a wonderful and hugely talented human being. Not just a recording artist, but a poet, a playwright, an award-winning author too. Kay knows a thing or two about harnessing creativity to bring people together. They've even written a book about it, and we'll get to that in a bit. And last but not least, I've got the front man of one of the biggest UK bands of the last 10 years as I'll be chatting to Dan Smith from Bastille. But before all of that, we begin with three brand new tracks that I'm very excited about. For starters, we have Tobias Weezer and Adrian Held, aka Clan Carusso, which I've just found out means sound carousel in German. I need to be able to use Clan Russell in normal conversation from now on. Now, before this electronic duo formed, the name Clan Russell referred exclusively to Tobias' solo work, but when Adrian joined the ranks, Tobias couldn't help but share. And now the moniker refers to the music they make together. Right, so that's their name, but where's the track? It's right here. This is Follow. We, we don't have a lot to talk about said it all a couple thousand times before you're in my head i'm in yours we somehow always falling in and out prisoners or walls we build around us we tear them down and then we go and build some more Oh, 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 
lovely melodic pop to start things off from Clanka Russell. Now my new favourite word. Next up, we have retro revolutionary Matt Costa. Hailing from California, this singer-songwriter has been providing us with sonic delights from as far back as 2005. Now, he combines his love of 60s folk, 70s AM pop and 80s college rock. And here's a prime, also 60s sounding example, Savannah. you immediately back to happy summers that Matt Costa and Savannah 
Last up for now is a song I dare you not to dance to. London-based Tisha is a producer for all genres. As it should be, I say. Now, don't just take my word for it. She's been tipped by names as varied as NME, Mixmag, Billboard and Radio 1's Pete Tong. And here she is with Change featuring Gabrielle Applin. Fantastic sound and track T-shirt with change. Great layering of melodies on that. This is Play Next, brought to you by me, Edith Bowman, and BMW. Now, if you like the tracks I've just played you, there's more where that came from later on. But right now, I want to speak to you about a Leeds-born collective that are forging their own path into how you should and can make music. 
Jobbing session musicians and producers in their own right, members of Got Street Park have already worked with artists such as Mabel, Celeste, Yellow Days and Green Tea Peng. Now it's their time as they combine all their experience and influence, not only to make their music, but make it in a way that's unique to them. Welcome to the show, gents. Um, hello, Josh. Hey, Edith. Hey, Tom. Hello. Hi, Joe. Hello. I guess it's a, the best place to start is kind of, you know, what's the story behind Got Street Park? How long have you guys been been making music under this name for? Maybe like 10 years or something. I don't know. Maybe less. 10 years? But I don't know. It's hard because <laughs> we've been, we've been making music together so long. It's kind of yeah. just natural at some point to go a certain route and give it a name. Well, when did you start making music together then? Maybe that's the better question to start with, is when did you start making music together and how did those relationships start? I mean, so I came to Leeds in kind of 2007 and met Tom pretty quickly and we were making music together pretty fast. And maybe met Josh something like a year after that. And it was, it was kind of the, the music college scene at the time. Everyone kind of knows people through people and Josh wasn't at college, but was living with people we knew at college. Yeah. And yeah, just kind of really just formed from that quite organically. And did you start kind of because I know that you've, you've, you've worked in terms of producing other, a lot of other artists, but in terms of making that decision to be, you know, your own collective almost, so to speak, was that something that took a little bit of time to get to the point where you knew what you wanted it to be and what sound you wanted it to have? I think it was kind of from the start when we first started playing together we knew it was going to be something that was for ourselves and actually the sort of producing for other people and working on other songs for other people was something that kind of naturally progressed from just jamming together really yeah yeah I think it was like it was sort of part of the recording process at the time as well because I was really into I sort of became obsessed with these old like 60s Motown records and like how they were recorded and things and I had sort of a studio in my bedroom and we just basically kind of get everyone together in one room and try and sort of capture that sound I guess. There's a beautiful kind of um I love the I love the kind of quality and it's really interesting you talking about experimenting with how you record stuff and what you record it on because there's a real timelessness I think to the sound that you have and you really get a warmth and kind of depth in the way that you've you've kind of produced it and put it together. Is that something that was kind of really deliberate in terms of, you know, when you're talking about that idea of of exploring how things are recorded and how that then really kind of gives a, I guess, an emotion and a different texture to what, what you're making? Yeah, I think it's a mix of, I think it's a mix of the musicianship and, you know, the fact everyone's playing in the same room. Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it is to do with spill and sort of capturing the spill in a room so that, you know, not everything's kind of separated and quite clinical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an element of it. And then there's, you know, just the geeking out about old microphones <laughs> and tube gear and tape machines. And yeah, definitely there's the, the sort of emphasis on the analogue. I think as well, though, with that, you can you can feel the kind of effort that's gone into it, you know, in terms of it's not like you say, you just can't, you don't clean everything up. It's not about everything being pristine and about you know, everything, you know, each track being absolutely clear. The idea of performing live and recording live, it creates something that you can't replicate, really, I don't yeah. think. Now we've, there's been times where we've tried to revisit tracks and like, oh, I should get a better take or this and that. And quite a few times where we've just not been able to catch the original vibe or just, just the excitement when you've just written a track and you just kind of 
jam it out and it's there. It's kind of, it captures a lot of the magic, I think, that, that it's hard to recreate sometimes. It gets a bit sterile or people get worried about what they're playing or too considerate. Yeah. So we're kind of going for that. We've just kind of embraced it in the end and we just write and record and it's there. Yeah, it costs a lot to live free. About as roof as the bottom of the sea at times. It's just me. I was raised to find peace. I guess my mind is like, like low tide in the spring. And now lucid, I reside in my dreams and the stars. And what I mean is I fall apart at the seams at times. It's still seamless. You just seem less. And you don't get how big the picture is. So relax. So many woes. I must have made bags. Who does what in terms of, does everybody have their kind of strengths in terms of where you, you know, what you all come together with? I think um, generally speaking, we sort of, like we used to sort of have ideas and bring them to the table, but now we just come kind of to with a clean slate, I think. And then something will just, we'll just be like having a jam and someone will play a few chords that we like and then we'll sort of like point that out to each other. We're like, oh, that was really good. Let's, you know, let's work on that. Um, and then... If we're with an artist, it's a little bit different. Sometimes, like if we've if we've got an artist in there, they'll be the ones to point out the bits that they like, and then we'll sort of develop from there. And what about when it comes to featured artists? Because you've worked with a you know a really exciting and and kind of diverse mix of of voices and artists. How does it how does that how do those decisions happen in terms of deciding who you want to work with and approaching them and and again that collaboration with with them? Just anyone we're excited by, I think. Yeah. In a way, you never know. It's just you want a bit of chemistry. So yeah, in general, if if we're excited by them, and especially you know, if, if personally, I, mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I, I like people who just sound like they're doing themselves. Yeah, someone like Rosie Lowe, you know, features on everything. It's like it's it's really interesting because it's almost like you know your jigsaw is you know when you are collaborating with other artists, it's like they're the final piece of the puzzle sort of thing. And it's amazing how how it's just kind of really brilliant synergy when you hear those vocals and you hear that that kind of collaboration. Do you mind talking a little bit about the track Everything? Yeah, uh, it was that was actually one of the oldest, like sort of like one of the first tracks we actually wrote together. And we've had it for a long time as an instrumental and we actually were contemplating releasing it as an instrumental many times. But uh, but yeah, we sent some stuff to Rosie during lockdown and she picked that track out of a few different options and she loved it and wrote something pretty quick and, and then sent something to us. Uh, we had a few sort of backwards and forwards, uh, like us giving some feedback on what we thought about the chorus or the, you know, just kind of writing from afar. Uh, and eventually got to that place, but it didn't take that long, to be honest. It was only like a few few messages backwards and forwards, and yeah, that was it. Has it ever surprised you in terms of when you've sent an artist a selection of tracks and the one that they've gone for? Sometimes what people have done on the track has surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it, because we, we're like, we've got, it's like, it's obviously the live instruments and it maybe has an element of jazziness to it or whatever. I think people think, oh, I'm going to express my more musical side so we've had rappers sometimes like that have, have like decided to sing on a track and you know it's fine but we kind of want them to rap <laughs> <laughs> have that like, awkward conversation going love what you've done but <laughs> yeah pretty much but you have to be honest with people yeah. otherwise nothing's going to progress or you're just going to go around in circles really isn't it mm. i think that one of the, the best things about us as a collective in terms of just within our own kind of um, writing thing is that we, we don't really have to communicate to each other that much like what we think is good or bad it's like if one person thinks something's bad most likely like 
all three of us will yeah there's not much disagreement generally speaking Flicka is a great choice as a featured artist on Favourite Kind of Girl. Would you mind talking to me a little bit about the the kind of journey and start of that song and how that ended up? We wrote that together in the room. She came to Leeds. I think it was written in a day and recorded in a day. Wow. Yeah, we did. I think we did like three tunes with her in two days. And loads of little skits and bits as well. Skit name for an album, that. Skits and bits, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about kind of, is it called Armley where you're based? And the idea that, you know, people come to you and you've got this, you've got a vibe around it and you've, and, and whether that, where you are has been something that's influenced how you make music and, you know, that kind of thing as well, because surroundings can have a, an influence on people, I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a pressure on us to like, individually and as a, as a sort of collective to like be in London either more or like move to London, but mm. it hasn't really felt right for any of us like for whatever reason um and i just yeah i just like being up north basically i do think it's got a vibe i like the crack like that like the people yeah it's got an atmosphere i'd say if you were to drive around the area and just film it would fit nicely to the music listen it's so nice to chat to you and find out a bit more about you know kind of how how you how you're doing this and it's really exciting i love the kind of the real kind of sort of dedication you have to the craft of it as well. It's 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 really brilliant to hear. Thanks so much for your time, Josh, Tom, and Joe. It's really lovely to to learn a little bit more about Got Street Park. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Got Street Park. So refreshing to hear a band so united in vision. Here they are with everything featuring Rosie Lowe. Sign. 
Hot Street Park, everything featuring Rosie Lowe. You get something different with every guest artist they collaborate with. And the depth of that production, I think, really shines through. You're listening to Play Next. And don't forget, you can catch up with all the songs we've played today and in previous episodes on our very own Play Next playlist. Just search BMW UK in Spotify. Now, in a moment, I'll be playing you a brilliant new track from female four-piece Friedberg. But first, let's talk about something that without it, well, we'd have no music, no culture. And let's face it, not much fun either. That, my dear friends, is creativity. Whether it be bandmates like Got Street Park coming together to make an entire song in a day or the oneness you feel with fellow audience members at a gig, the creativity of music has always been a staggering unifier. But what is it about creativity that has such a profound ability to connect us? To answer this question and more, here's spellbinding poet, author and two-time Ivor Novello-nominated recording artist, Kay Tempest. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come and chat to us on the podcast. It's a proper treat to get to catch up with you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm fascinated to talk to you about the different, you know, you're kind of like a, a polymath in terms of creativity, whether that's poetry collections or plays or novels or albums or featuring as an artist on other people's albums. You know, you you do so many different types of things and... How do you know as a as a creative person what's going to be the right avenue for, you know, expressing yourself? The trick is, uh, is that instead of telling the idea what you want it to be, or instead of me telling my ideas what I want them to be, I, I have to learn how to listen to what they want from me. Because a few times I've I've tried to force them into unnatural places and the and it hasn't worked out. I've tried to make something that didn't work as a play, work as a novel, and it just flopped. It didn't it didn't work very well at all. And then also the the honest truth is that it's determined by what contractually I have to deliver because as well as this being my <laughs> my like huge vocation, it's also how I make my living. So there, it might be the case that I have to deliver a poetry collection. So then what I have to work on is poems. Or it might be the case that what I have to deliver is a non-fiction pamphlet. So then I know I've got to finish that in two months or, you know, so it's that there is an element of just practicality mm. and then there's an element of the ideas how do you work under um, pressure in terms of like when you have a deadline on something? Is it a good, is it a good sort of thing to have? Or yeah, or... I love it. I love pressure. <laughs> I feel like, like obviously, like, I it does my head in. But um, my uh, what I've learned is that if you've got two years to finish something, it'll take two years, and if you've got two weeks, it'll take two weeks. That's what I find. Like. It makes for a bumpy ride and it can be pretty mm. hardcore when you've got a hundred things happening at the same time. But mm. I think without deadlines, without pressure, I wouldn't be as prolific as I am. And it comes from way back when I was just starting out. I was I decided that I wanted this to be my living. I didn't want to do a, a normal job anymore. I wanted to make this, poetry mm-hmm. and lyrics and music, my work. And so I just took commissions basically there was an organization called apples and snakes that helped poets get commissions so you might be asked by bernardo's to write a poem for them or you might be asked by a school to write a poem for them there were these things you would become like a pen for hire you know i just that's how i learned how to respond to deadlines is like okay no matter what else is going on 
I have to sit down and write this. Can we talk about On Connection um, that came out last week? It's a brand new book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to say what it's about. I'd much rather you tell us what you where the seed and the idea came from and, and what was the, the journey and the process to, to, to writing and putting this together. Uh, it is a, I don't know, like um, a meditation or a reflection on lots of things that I've been working out over the past 20 years, basically, mm. of um, of performing and writing. Stuff about empathy, connection, what brings a room together, why sometimes performances work and other times they don't. <laughs> it's like a theory of creativity, I suppose, but it's balanced with some personal uh, reflections on my own life. So it's not just... It's not just what I think is true, but it's also how I've come to believe these things about connection, numbness, creativity. Yeah. When have you felt most connected music-wise? Has there been a moment in terms of that you felt like music's been the only option in terms of it being the right way to say what you want to say and express what you want to express? Yeah, like every day that feels like that. It's like, but I mean, there's something about music that, enables words to have meaning beyond just the scope of the word like you know mm-hmm. when when you hear somebody yeah. sing the same word again and again and again and it just the meaning just like gets deeper and deeper and deeper like um as a poet i couldn't go on stage and repeat a line 25 times and expect that to move somebody <laughs> but like you hear james blake <laughs> sing the same line you know 20 times and yeah. by the end of the song you're just like it, it has new meaning every time. So I'm still looking for ways to to develop my musicality and, and still looking for people to work with to try and get a bit closer to this instinct I have. But it must work the other way, though, in terms of, of you know, people wanting to work with you. And you look at the, the, the tracks that you've, you know, you've appeared on a, an incredible mix of things as well. So I guess for you navigating the ones that you want to say yes to and the ones that you... You know, again, is it is it a kind of connection thing? Is it a, a, you know, there's a there's there's a, a physical thing there, I guess. My my belief really is that um, the work will find a way to get out, and and however yeah. that's meant to happen, it will present itself. That that doesn't um, mean that I shouldn't put the work in to try and make it happen. It just means that I have enough trust and faith in in creativity itself that I kind of feel like. The way that the whole the whole career has worked out, I do absolutely everything I can to be prepared for something that I can't prepare for. You know, I, I do absolutely everything I can to get all my skills match fit. You know, I'm ready. I, I put all these hours in. I, I feel confident. I've like written all this stuff, but then the actual thing itself, when it happens, it's a mystery. I don't know why. You know, I don't know why it happens that you meet this person or that the song comes out that way or that the idea suddenly makes sense and... So I don't know. There's an element of mystery to it, which I respect. No, but I love I love that idea. You know, my, it's like my mum has this great saying, which is like, "What's meant for you won't pass you by." And I do believe that things that are meant to be part of your world will present themselves to you in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that doesn't absolve you from trying to go get it. What do you reckon is the biggest thing that you've taken away from writing on connection? I feel like. It's part of a moment in my life about being more honest with the world about how I experience myself and and changing my name and coming out as non-binary and 
writing this book. It's all part of one kind of breath, really, for me, it feels like. And um, just being a bit more open about how I've come to these conclusions, like revealing things about my mental ill health, things like that, that I yeah. that are in the book that it hasn't been the right time for me to discuss that in my work. Apart from obviously in abstract ways, a lot of my characters suffer with mental mm-hmm. ill health. But I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from doing all this is that if you're in your truth and you're respecting yourself, nothing can hurt you. It only hurts if you're not. Yeah. You know, before I came out, uh, people didn't, didn't know the, how painful it was to be in the public eye and be, be being mistaken for something that I didn't feel I was, you know, and being talked about as something that I didn't recognise or feel that I was. Yeah. And that constant pain just made it really difficult to do anything, really. Everything was mm. like there, there was this undercurrent of just shame and pain. And now it's like I understand that I didn't need to live that way. It was a, it was a, a huge relief. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like I could breathe. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you. So great to talk to you. <laughs> I really hope I get the chance to to see you in person soon and experience your wonderful performance in whatever shape or form that may be. But it's always a pleasure, Kay. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Edith. I always come away from talking to Kay with a sense of empowerment, like anything is possible. A fantastic and hugely talented human being. Now, as this is episode 10, because, well, we like to shower you with gifts whenever we can, we've got two more tracks and another interview for you still to come. And the first of those tracks is this one from Friedberg. Pass Me On has an instant toe-tapping beat along with anthemic lyrics and high-energy, catchy guitar riffs. And here it is. You say you have no time. You better
I like that a lot. Pass me on from Friedberg. So normally at this point of the podcast, I'd be waving you a cheery goodbye. Oh, but not today, my friends. Not today. Because as Eminate once said, I've got a little something for you. Not quite like that, obviously, but you get what I mean. You'll no doubt need no introduction to the music of Bastille. Since forming 10 years ago, they've won many, many awards and have sold in the region of 10 million records, thanks to tracks like Of The Night and Pompeii. Come on, I had to. They've also had success collaborating with artists like Craig David and Marshmello. I was first introduced to them when I did the Radio 1 review show and my friend Kate, who was a friend and fan of the band, slipped a CD, remember those, under my nose. And I was thoroughly impressed and managed to get them on the show. So, very happy that I got the chance to talk with frontman Dan Smith for this podcast. And now you have the chance of hearing what he had to say. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on Play Next. It's lovely to see you, even if it's virtually. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I was excited to see what colour your hair was going to be or if you'd have hair. Oh yeah, no, I do. I've got hair today. It's good. Yeah. How's it been for you creatively? Has it been a creative time or have you found it quite hard to kind of find that headspace? It's been a mix, you know. I, I think at the beginning we were sort of in the middle of making loads of new music, which felt really exciting. And then, you know, like with everything and everyone... There's nothing like a global pandemic to give a bit of perspective on things. So that was, you know, I guess I kind of stopped and, you know, other things felt way more important (laughs) for a while. But at the same time, I think being able to write songs was a real luxury and a real lifeline. And having started a bunch of music and being able to kind of continue that and then also work on new stuff as well definitely gave a bit of routine. And, but yeah, I got back into the groove and we've, you know, we've been... Super productive. It's been kind of really interesting in terms of, like I went to studio to do some filming for Sky back in June and that was the kind of closest thing I got to, you know, a normal studio with the crew. And it was really weird because I had two days of it and then it was kind of stripped, taken away from me immediately. And it was like, I got really down because it was like, I don't know when I'm going to get to do that again. You know, I know how much I get out of what I do because I'm not getting to do it as much. and. You must feel that, particularly with the live side of things, you know. I really love writing songs and that's sort of where I'm most comfortable and where I feel most like able and excited. So a lot of the other things that come in with being in a band maybe don't sit like as well with me, but I'm also really aware that they're not bad things and I'm very lucky. So you think, you know, touring as a lifestyle, it's just mad, as you know. It's almost in a kind of like upside down perverse way. It's allowed me to have this year of just focusing on making music and none of the other stuff that I've sort of never really had since before our first album came out. Um, And getting to just, yeah, enjoy being a writer and working on our own stuff, working on other people's stuff, doing sessions, like doing Zoom sessions. (laughs) Like, it's so weird and feels like the least natural thing in the world, but in our own way, kind of managed to make it work. Yeah. Um, And actually written probably one of my favourite songs that I've ever done in a Zoom session, which seems so weird to say out loud. And how do you write a song on Zoom? As someone that's always just written as and when, the idea of like a songwriting session in itself feels weird. The idea that you'd go sit in a room with someone that you either do or don't know and be like, let's write a song. It feels like the least kind of (laughs) natural thing ever. And so on Zoom, everything about it is embarrassing and odd and bizarre. And I I did a few that felt really unnatural and didn't really work. And I think when people are trying to produce 
in those sessions. It was a nightmare with like the delays on Zoom and all that kind of stuff. There was one session I did with a guy called Dan Wilson, who I'd been quite excited to work with for a while. I'd met him when I was in the US and we ended up just doing the session anyway over Zoom. And I think in not thinking about production and in it being me at the piano and him at a guitar, it's actually quite intimate and you probably concentrate more staring down the barrel of a camera on your computer yeah. than, you, than you maybe would in the room. And also, you know, it was LA his time and UK my time. So we started at nine at night and I was like, I don't want this to go on too long. And in that particular session, you know, he's like a successful writer in his own, you know, he's done so many amazing things in his band and as a songwriter. So I sort of going into it, had this idea, this sort of story that I that wanted to tell. I'd seen this film and, you know, anyway, it was, I had loads of notes and, and it's just, it's one of those like, Things worked out. The song came out yeah. immediately and he's such a pro that he didn't let me leave until everything was was completely done with the song. And, and you know, and, and I guess for me what's interesting is I've always with Bastille stuff like, and, and stuff for other people, produced and written at the same time. And in this situation, you know, it was just a song at a piano and it didn't exist anywhere. We didn't record it. So for about a month, the song only really existed like in my head. And, um, and that was really nice. The credits that you've got of so far of kind of, you know, songwriting credits. It's an amazing collection of artists. So it's a case that they come to you and they go, you know, whether it's Brad Bowman or Dan Crow or Foxy's, they all just come up and go, damn, do you, do you want to come and do some writing? Or, you know, how does that work? For, for me, like, writing songs is something I always just do anyway. So I kind of get on with it. I have, like, a rolling list of voice notes and ideas on laptops. And so for me, like, there are constant waves of, like, ideas that I have down. And I guess for Bastille songs, it's generally had historically been, like, the things that feel the most authentic to me, the things that I want to write, they'd be the Bastille songs. Then there's, you know, occasionally there's other ideas that don't feel right for us. But, yeah, I guess with the songwriting, like, I made a conscious decision a few years ago that I wanted to to, to write for other people. In in our, our kind of process has always been, like, I'd write the songs, I'd demo them, and then we'd work on them, and then like produce them with our friend Mark Crew who's so I've sort of co-produced all of our stuff with him and that's been like three albums worth of stuff like four mixtapes like you know songs for other people all this stuff and and I guess getting to the end of our last album which I guess sort of wrapped up in like February this year it felt like the end of a I don't know maybe self-imposed but the end of like a trilogy of of everything of like aesthetics and ways of working and all that kind of stuff and I felt like in order for me to remain somewhere in the realm of sanity and in order for us just to like stay interesting I wanted just to loosen up the process a bit and, and kind of just collaborate more but it's also lyrically you've never been shy to to have something to say you know did you always want that to be the case did you always want to kind of be able to use music as a way of of starting a discussion or reacting to something or yeah that's a really good question I think the first album they were almost like a collection of stories and I was like very obsessed with, as I still am, like film and narrative and literature and, and trying to use like things that I found interesting outside of my life to reflect on more personal things. And then I think when we were making our second album, you know, it was, we released it in 2016 in the backdrop of, you know, Trump being elected and Brexit and these kind of world events that were kind of hard to ignore. And like, you know, there's mm -hmm. a song about grief. There's, there's, you know, a lot of the album is wrapped up in like, how the f*** are you meant to react to these changes in the world that are so confusing and distressing? So, you know, there's a song about losing yourself in, in somebody else for the night or, like, burying your head in the sand. Like, and then that's definitely something that became a preoccupation for us and that's basically what the third album was about. We've had these two new pieces of music from you guys. You know, are those 
tracks planned for an album or what's the idea with those? We wanted to sort of change the guff a bit and just release stuff as it felt relevant. So, you know, what are you going to do? This sort of like loud rock song with Graham Coxon, you know, the idea of it was living in 2020, like in or out of lockdown, having everybody constantly vying for our attention and that kind of being such a premium. I don't know. It was our kind of like, our like punk challenge to people. Like, if you're going to fight so hard for our attention, at least do something decent with it or give me something at the very least funny and entertaining <laughs> once you've got me. You know, it's kind of like our teen spirit moment or something. And then with Surviving, again, yeah, it was like a thought process that I had last year, but it's, it's felt relevant this year. And I guess because of that, I was nervous to put it out. But yeah, I just wanted to surprise people with each release. And I think with what you're going to do, you know, potentially sow the seed that maybe we've like quote-unquote, like, gone rock, which, like, we haven't. But, yeah, like, there's, I guess, just to show off all the elements of different music that we love and the different things we want to do and keep it interesting for us and just keep it spontaneous. Dan, it's so great to chat to you, mate. Really lovely to see you and you look really well and great to hear that, you know, that you're finding these brilliant ways to be creative and constantly, um, you know, have, have music to provide us with as fans. So thank you so much for your time. It's really great to chat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, never a chore to catch up with Dan from Bastille. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Play Next brought to you in partnership with BMW. And I really hope you've enjoyed all 10 episodes. If you missed any, please do go back and have a listen. I've certainly enjoyed it. I've been able to share some of my absolute favourite new acts with you and I've been able to talk to some inspiring pioneers. I'm very proud of the music and conversations we've had on the show and I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Why don't we end then for now where we started 10 weeks ago with me playing you an absolute corker of a track from a brilliant new artist. His name is Aaron Taylor and he started off playing keyboards in a church gospel choir when he was 12 and always hoped to be a music producer. But when he started to write songs, he thought, well, someone's got to sing them. So he did it himself. And I'm very glad he did. Take a listen to his voice on this. It's extraordinary. This is Icarus. We
Aaron Taylor with Icarus and it's my absolute pleasure to have been able to play you that and all of the other songs across 10 episodes of Play Next. Until we meet again, thanks for listening. (laughs) 